Let's talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. Hello, and welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie-by-movie and television series-by-television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're taking a look at Avengers Assemble, released in April 2012, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach's tale of whiskey-based redemption The Angel's Share, Martin Scorsese's New York Taxi iPhone advert, or Jennifer Anderson in Wonderlust instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Avengers Assemble when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. Possibly about 15 minutes too long, that intro really is a bit ponderous, but it really ramps up once Loki is let off the leash and the rest of it just rockets by. That's what I had to say about it though, and joining me to give his thoughts on Avengers Assemble is writer Mark Griffiths. Mark, where can people find you? Well, I'm on Twitter. You can get me um, at MarkGriffiths42, should you wish. Okay, so before we go any further, Mark, what happens in Avengers Assemble? Our superheroes, whom we've met in previous Marvel films, are sort of brought together as a crime-fighting team. Black Widow, Hulk, Thor, Captain America, Iron Man probably one guy who I've forgotten fight Loki, Thor's brother who was come here from Asgard to generally cause mayhem. Yeah that's essentially what he's doing and that mayhem is kind of the starting point for the whole of everything going up to basically the most recent film, Spider-Man Far From Home is kind of the end of what starts with well actually it, technically it doesn't start with Avengers Assemble but we'll come to that in a minute but well that's a pretty succinct summation of it but Mark, what do you know about <laughs> the Avengers before you saw this film? I was reasonably aware of them. I'm not a terribly big comic fan, although I was when I was a kid, and so that was where I'd have come across the Avengers initially. I didn't really get comics week to week, except maybe Hulk, but I did always like annuals and the kind of uh, anthologies you'd get. I've always been kind of aware of them, but never they've never really been my main superheroes. Hulk and Spider-Man, more so, I think. The interesting thing is that watching this again, I realised that although the characters had all appeared in previous films, including Hawkeye, who briefly appears in Thor, this film reintroduces them all completely. As if to say to anyone who's not seen any of the films before, you know, you can join in as well. And I would not be surprised if people who saw this first had no idea that Black Widow and Hawkeye had been in previous films because their introduction is absolute I mean it assumes some familiarity with the others but those two are basically it's like the audience is meeting them for the first time which I think is a really good way of doing this it's a good sort of first Marvel film to watch it's a good entry point really if you don't want to go through the entire canon from the start this is a very good intro we get intros not just to Hawkeye and Black Widow but we get fairly good intros into the other characters in a way I think just by those little scenes that introduce them and we see there you know we see Captain America in that great scene in the gym where you know his powers are established and we get a little bit of his backstory yeah it's particularly interesting about Captain America at this point because obviously he's only previously been in Captain America the first Avenger which is essentially a costume drama about his wartime origins and he's only just I think at the end of the first film he really 
realizes in the present and Nick Fury talks about how he might be used in assignments for S.H.I.E.L.D. and so on. This is almost straight after that and he's still at that point quite an old-fashioned character unlike he became later. I mean the bit that really stood out for me was when Thor and Loki temporarily get away from the rest of them. Black Widow sort of says well they're essentially gods and he says there's only one god mom and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. That does not square with the later Captain America. They've still got him in that kind of wartime hero mode. And there's other things like, again, this comes in a lot into the other films that he doesn't recognise modern references until somebody mentions flying monkeys. And he says, I got that one. Yes. It's a great moment. It also starts to think of people hero worshipping as well, because Phil Coulson from S.H.I.E.L.D., who we'll talk more about S.H.I.E.L.D. in a bit, but he has he carries a set of Captain America trading cards around with him. And it's a thing that goes right through the films. That there are people who really look up to him. And they put an interesting spin on that, again, which we'll come to in later shows, but in the TV series, where a lot of the vigilantes, you know, Luke Cage, Daredevil, Jessica Jones and so on, have a dim view of him because they're helping the people who there's nobody to help. And they're kind of, well, not everyone's got a guy with a big shield. But the Punisher likes him because he stands up for the values that the Punisher believes in. And it's very interesting that he kind of dominates the films with that personality. That scene in Germany where Loki's making everybody kneel and you have the old man there who stands up alone and goes, not to men like you. And you think, oh God, here we go. He's going to cop it. And then Captain America arrives and protects the guy with his shield, which is about as glaring a metaphor for, you know, how the Americans saw themselves in the Second World War. <laughs> you get, really. Yeah, because he makes the explicit reference to the last time I saw a man like you, he had his arm raised. There is always men like you. The others are kind of introduced in quite low-key ways. The Hulk is basically doing what he did in the Hulk film, although it's a new actor. It's Mark Ruffalo now, because various things happened with Edward Norton, he didn't come back. And we got, in my opinion, we got somebody much more suited to the role instead, but it's a quite a low-key introduction for him. Iron Man's just basically powering up Stark Tower. Thor arrives just on the trail of Loki. But the interesting one is Black Widow is introduced in... See, this is really undermined as something that happens later in the film, and kind of almost spoils the film for me. It's just introduced in a very powerful way, because we should say this was co-written and directed by Joss Whedon who, yeah, there is a thread running through his work of strong female characters and Black Widow is introduced looking as though she's being tortured by shady Eastern European types trying to get information and they go to start trying to torture her in kind of quite a sexualised way. You know, they hold their mouth open in a very unpleasant way as they go to pull their teeth out but there's obvious undertones to that. And then you suddenly realise she's in charge, she's the one drilling them for information, and she basically just kills them for being so disrespectful. But my yeah. problem is that later on, there's a scene where she confronts Loki in kind of a similar situation. But he, when she's playing scared, he uses the phrase mewling quim, which makes me I know, yes, ill. That's... It just it jars so badly. But it's, it's such a poor choice of words, and you wonder what anyone was actually thinking, because the rest of the film, she's such an assured character. I mean, there are bits where it's made obvious that she is attracted to Captain America just in the way she stands looking at him. And there's a bit where Tony Stark shows off and she sort of nods quite approvingly. But in a kind of way of, I could have either of those men if I wanted, but I don't want to, which is really setting a decent precedent the Marvel films have followed. They've never had the 
a lead female character sort of subordinate to the men. And I'm really glad they hit the ground running sort of so effectively so early with that. And we should just dial back to the start of the film because it's really important to say here. I mean, I mentioned the intro being a bit ponderous, but it's almost 15 minutes before we get any recognisable superheroes in, unless you count Hawkeye sort of having one or two lines because the entire start of it is about S.H.I.E.L.D., but it introduced... Well, Nick Fury has been in it before, and Phil Coulson. Maria Hill, I actually had to go back and check that this was her first appearance, but it is. And it's 15 minutes of them establishing themselves, and you can see... I actually enjoyed it a lot more, that start, watching it again this time. And it's obvious that Joss Whedon, probably even when he was directing that, thought, there's a TV series in this, which obviously became <laughs> Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which got off to a slow start but genuinely became good later on. Um, the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier, the sort of massive land, sea and air vehicle, which admittedly in the comics, it dates back to 1965, but the prominence it's given here and the sort of the effects that he used on it and the way it's depicted and the way the characters act on it, I'm going to come out and say this. I think the way it appears in this one was partly inspired by the Valiant and the relaunched Doctor Who, which is still a new and current thing at, at that point. The Valiant was units very similar, sort of space aircraft, and appearance-wise, sort of movement-wise, it's all very similar. And we know Joss Whedon had been watching the new Doctor Who, so did it inform yeah, oh, him in I any way? Realized, I hadn't realised that the unit one predated the Joss Whedon one. It does, just by a couple of years, yeah, and it played a very heavy role yeah. in a very similar kind of way as well. Whereas Indeed, the yeah. was a bit more incidental in the comics. It was a piece of kit, really. It wasn't given that showpiece appearance that it is here. But do you think S.H.I.E.L.D. worked particularly well in this context? Certainly through the character of Agent Coulson, there's some pr- pretty good moments with them, especially with the humour with Agent Coulson. I think that works pretty well. There's that bit at the start where uh, Black Widow is, whilst tied to the chair, she's um, attacking her interrogators, and Coulson is kind of waiting on hold on his phone. <laughs> Well, he kicks the crap out of them. I think that's a really lovely moment. Yeah, there's a lot of humour like that. I mean, there's when Loki mentions that he is real power and Nick Fury says, let me know if real power wants a magazine or something. Yeah. They say to Loki, you scared of a little lightning. I'm not overtly fond of what follows. And also, the yes. discussion between Captain America and Iron Man, we need a plan of attack. I have a plan, attack. There are great moments <laughs> like that. But I only feel that S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of, once the Avengers themselves get going, they sort of run out to purpose. I think they got the balance better in later films. But in this, they're a bit like Raymond Burr in the English dub of Godzilla. He's there to explain to the audience what's going on. You know, he's continually saying, what are they saying? Are they saying Godzilla's on the loose? It's not quite as bad as that, but it kind of runs out of momentum a bit. Yeah, you do have to leave the action to the people in the most outrageous costumes at the end of the day, don't you? <laughs> Just on the subject of one-liners there, there's one of my all-time favourites, which is after Loki has been completely ragdolled by the Hulk, and the Hulk stumps away and says, puny god, which is just, just fantastic. I mean, you'd think, you know, I mean, obviously the Hulk is a, a chap of few words, I think, I think that's fair to say. He hasn't been terribly well served in the past in terms of zingers. Just as Russell T. Davis pointed out, that Doctor Who writers used to hate writing dialogue for Daleks because they thought it was, you know, just kind of boring and one note. And then he came along and then he made Dalek dialogue really intelligent and fun. I think this is what Wheaton's done with the Hulk 
this time around. He's actually found a way to inject a little bit of humour and sophistication into, you know, those few words that he gets. Yeah, I think really this was the culmination of, obviously there have been five films leading up to this, some of which have worked better than others, it's safer to say, but I was a bit trepidatious about the Avengers because there have been some attempts, although not many, at doing them, mainly in cartoons in the past, that didn't really work. There was Avengers United They Stand in the 90s, which had a completely different line-up. Earth's Mightiest Heroes, which is a bit more like the film, but there's also been, on the subject of S.H.I.E.L.D., this is completely forgotten now, the David Hasselhoff TV movie, Nick Fury, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. fantastic but the script and the direction are woeful so there was this long history of both the avengers and shield not quite working and i was thinking are they gonna mess it up again but i don't think it puts a foot wrong and the interesting thing is it's not like a recognizably joss whedon take on anything he's obviously thought i am making an avengers film not i am making a joss whedon film that happens to have these characters in it and I don't think it gets talked about as being part of the Buffyverse, even though I'm sure probably somewhere there are some deep references. I've got no idea. <laughs> One thing I love about this film is the way it serves each of the characters so well. They each get their turn in the spotlight. Each one has their own moment to shine. They get their own chance to push the plot forward and they get their own little zinger one-liner to uh grab a laugh from the audience on the way i think it's really important to do that when you've got a team to make sure that you serve everyone individually i think that works really well and the other interesting thing is that as i said this is kind of the starting point of what goes on you know across over 20 films really and tv series as well is that this is basically, because the reason Loki is sent to Earth is on, we don't know it yet, but it's at the behest of Thanos, the sort of menacing intergalactic figure who we later discover has a plan to wipe out half of all existence across the universe. But he sent Loki to retrieve two of the Infinity Stones, which have been alluded to, but not as that in the previous films. But it's at this point, although they're not identified as the Infinity Stones yet, but we get an idea of what he's after. And it also, really sort of playing the long game here, it establishes a couple of things that become quite important later on, because I noticed that even at this point, they mention that the Infinity Stones emit gamma radiation, yeah. which obviously is what Bruce Banner is used to, and it becomes a very important plot point much later on. When they're discussing what will be done with the Tesseract if it's rescued, Captain America says, phase two is shield using the cube to make weapons, 
which we were about to go into phase two of the movies, and although it was Hydra within S.H.I.E.L.D. rather than S.H.I.E.L.D. itself, that's basically what happens in that. That's basically the mini-story arc of phase two. There's also Nick Fury saying, I lost by one good eye because I trusted somebody I shouldn't have. Now, much further down the line, we find out who he was referring to there and what he trusted them with. And it's not quite as heroic as he makes out, but... (laughs) I'm willing to bet that that was the plan even then. I know, it's fiendishly well plotted, the whole thing, isn't it? Well, I mean, we'll, obviously we can't talk that much about future films at this point, but there are some things where I do think they must have had that planned a long, long time ago. Nothing was thought up on the spur of the moment. And it's quite astonishing, really. Even to the extent that there are, there are some films that are next to each other where I think, how were they thinking that far ahead from Ant-Man and the Wasp to, to Endgame? In Hollywood somewhere, there is just one almighty spreadsheet with all this laid out, <laughs> which is in the, the safe at Marvel Studios. <laughs> It's probably a big wall chart with, you know, how you get in cop shows with bits of string leading from one photo to another. It's probably all completely analogue. There's also a really interesting thing that I cannot decide whether I think this is genuine foreshadowing or not. But when Nick Fury says to Loki, we have no quarrel with you, and he says, Anant has no quarrel with a boot, which is obviously a funny line, but the first Ant-Man film had been in the works even before they kind of decided on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Much, much later, it is really Ant-Man, the most unlikely one of them all, who undoes everything that happens as a result of this film. Is that deliberate, or is it not? I just can't decide. <laughs> I guess we'll it never know, because if you say it, they just claim it was. Well, yeah, I think it's probably coincidental, but it, it's very nice. Well, I was quite pleased with this, because to me, the Avengers will always be. I've mentioned on here before that one of the very first Marvel comics I ever got was an issue of the Avengers in 1979, which I read endlessly from cover to cover. And it was kind of what, I suppose you could call them the Studio 54 incarnation of the Avengers. Where, um, <laughs> I don't think Mockingbird was in them at that point. Point, but there's people like, you know, Hawkeye in his big, ridiculous, funked-up medieval archer costume. Ms. Marvel, later Captain Marvel. Wonder Man in his red denim jacket and shades face. They're straight off the page at you, they are. They're larger than life. And later on, you know, there were periods where the Avengers were dark. And there was the, in the cartoons, went for odd combinations of characters that didn't quite have that kind of swagger to them. You know, even when they were facing things they thought they probably couldn't defeat. There's a confidence that you don't get with weirdly enough my favourite Marvel team is the Defenders who are a lot darker and wrapped with self-doubt and so on and that's its own thing the Avengers War is the contrast to that and I think they got the perfect characters here in the perfect setting it was exactly what was needed and you know it wasn't obvious that we were going to bring Hawkeye into it and I think he was the perfect foil to the rest of them who in a way have all got their own agendas including Black Widow and he's kind of I work for S.H.I.E.L.D. and I stop the villains what's really great about the Avengers is just these huge huge personalities and how they don't always get along and so the first half of the film is them fighting each other which I think they they sort of have to do in a way because they need to build up that need in the audience to see them 
fighting together against a common foe. So you have to have them carping at each other. And um, <laughs> there's that great scene where they're just sniping at one another constantly. There's also the two post credit scenes. You've got the brilliant one where the other, who actually I didn't notice when I first saw it until I saw the end credits, is played by Alexis Denisov who's in a lot of Joss Whedon things. I think people will probably know him best as he, he was Wesley in Buffy and Angel. He's been in quite a few other things of his, but I right. have no idea that was him. But he reports to whoever has got him to employ Loki. And a very familiar figure turns around and kind of grins. Some people have known it was Thanos. Some won't have done. Well, that was quite a moment. It was one of those where you hear about 20% gasps in the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone else kind of thinking, ooh, a new alien. They're going to do a second one. But the other one is the Avengers just sitting around silently eating. Schwarmer. There's a bit of Tony Stark's. I think it's, it's a bit just after he stopped the, the nuke. And um, he's saying, oh, yeah, there's a new shawarma place around here. I've heard it's quite good. Not quite sure what it is, but we should go and try it out. <laughs> so, so it's like a kebab, basically. So that bit at the end is the payoff to that gag. I, I think it's brilliant the way they just sat there completely, kind of prosaically, having their chips. OK, well, before you go off for some chips, Mark, there's only one thing left for me to ask. If you had a bow and a set of technologically enhanced arrows, what would you use them for? I, ooh, I think I would um, see if there's any rebooted version of Bullseye running anywhere and trying to win <laughs> myself a bendy bully. I have to say that's the most unexpected one we've had yet. Mark, <laughs> thank you, and Excelsior. Yes, well, it's been an absolute pleasure. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget that you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks, including all of the solo movies of all of the Avengers, along with details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.